All right, I'm going to go ahead and read you the 82nd Psalm. This is a Psalm of Asaph. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Now, I'd like to say something about that particular psalm. It says there, I said, you are gods. Jesus uses that verse in the New Testament to argue against a plural as opposed to a singular. Every single word and even the, whether it's singular or plural or what it's referring to, every word of the Bible is holy and it has a purpose. And Jesus argued over that one word for the authority of scripture. That's how tenderly God looks over his word and to see how people abuse it. And I have posts all day long from people on Facebook saying that, oh, we don't really need the Bible. I have Holy Ghost power and all that kind of stuff. I'm telling you, it is very sad how we will be held accountable for our doctrine. Doctrine does matter in the Bible to the very word and the part of the word, the letter in the word. Everything about it is holy. So remember that. Jesus argued over a single word, whether it was singular, singular or plural. Okay? Uh, we're going to go ahead and read now our sermon text, which is, which is Genesis 48. It's verses 17 through 22. Our sermon today is entitled, The Fullness of the Gentiles. And I would like to say this before uh, we actually get into the sermon. I said this before the prophecy update as well, that if you are on YouTube and you're watching these sermons, if you would share them, that will help us to have a higher ranking, um, you know, because when things get shared, it goes up on the listing. And also, if you comment on videos, I may not respond to the comment, but if you just say, you know, something about the video, that will also help it to go up on YouTube ranking. And the reason why that's important is because I do not monetize the videos. I don't need any profit from these videos from Google. That's not my intent. I want things to be out there without annoying um, uh, advertisements on them for people to watch. And uh, by monetizing, I would go up in the ratings automatically. I'd rather not do that. So please feel free to make a comment, even if it's just, you know, thanks, have a nice day or something. That would be wonderful. And uh, please share that video as well. And that will replace me monetizing these, and it would be, you know, very much appreciated. And one more thing about today's sermon before I read you these verses. I've never given a difficulty level on a sermon before, but today's sermon, if I was to say on a one to 10 scale, the level of comprehension needed to understand what I'm going to talk about, it would be a nine out of 10. It's a very complicated sermon. And so if you're watching and you don't understand, you need to go back really and watch the entire book of Genesis and uh, especially Jacob and Joseph's life, but uh, at least the last two, which makes three sermons, which are on this particular subject. But even then, this is a very complicated sermon. Don't feel lost. Just take the quotes, look at them, read them, and think about them, what God is doing in human history, and it will begin to make sense. But I just want you to know that if you're watching and you say, I don't quite grasp what he's saying, don't feel bad about that. This is a, a rather technical sermon that we're going to go through. But here is our sermon text. It's Genesis 48, 17 through 22. Uh, now, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not so, my father. 
for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. In the late 1920s, here's a guy named Alexander Fleming. And he was investigating the properties of Staphylococci. Now, these are various bacterium that are responsible for many infections, some of which can be lethal. He was a well-known researcher, but this guy was not noted as a particularly tidy guy. So on the 3rd of September in 1928, he came back to his laboratory after having a, uh, spent a month with his family on vacation. And before his vacation, and in his usual untidy way, he left all of his cultures out on a bench. And when he came back, he found one of those cultures had been contaminated with fungus, which had surrounded that staff culture, and it had destroyed it. All the other cultures that were not tainted remained unaffected. Something life-changing had occurred right at that moment. He grew the mold into a pure culture, and he realized that through it, a substance was produced that killed a number of disease-causing bacteria. Through research, he identified the mold with the penicillin genus. Because of this, he changed the name that he had originally given it. He originally called it mold juice. He changed it to penicillin. And what was a misunderstanding of what he originally thought, that of having ruined an experiment, he came later to realize that he had revolutionized all of medicine by producing the world's very first antibiotic. Like Andrew Fleming, Joseph misunderstood what was occurring around him as well. He watched his father place his hands on his two own sons in a seemingly untidy way. But Joseph misunderstood the details because he misunderstood that God was in the details, directing his father Jacob to an infinitely higher wisdom. Today, we're going to go on a journey. It is a journey which affects every single one of us. And it is a journey which hinges on an ancient blessing pronounced upon the two sons of Joseph. The order of the blessing upon the boys from that time on would affect all of redemptive history for both Jew and Gentile. It shows us the immense wisdom of God and the immense wisdom and care that he takes in every detail of his word. Our text verse today comes from the book of Hosea. It's chapter 11, and I'm going to quote Hosea quite a few times in this sermon. It's a very important book to understand what's going on. It says there in the third verse and the fourth verse, I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. <clears throat> I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. Ephraim a name associated with the northern ten tribes of Israel was cared for by God, but they rejected his care. And so God rejected them, and they were exiled from their homeland because of that. But in their exile, God never forgot them, and he did something wonderful for them, while the southern tribes later went into their own exile. The rejection of the tribes, the church age, the calling back of Israel by God 
All of it is hinted at in a few short verses which detail a misunderstanding of Joseph, by Joseph, of what was occurring. It is all to be found in and to be drawn out from God's superior word. So let's turn there once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have, as usual, three thoughts for you, the first being, his younger brother shall be greater than he. This is verses 17 through 19. Now, in order to understand the context of what occurs in today's verses, we should go back and we should see what happened to bring us to the point that we're at right now. So I'm going to read you the verses from our sermon last week. It said there in verse 8, Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Please bring them to me and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has also shown me your offspring. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees and he bowed down with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right hand and brought them near him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be upon them and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Jacob guided his hands knowingly, crossing them over so that the preeminent blessing would fall upon Ephraim, the younger son, instead of Manasseh, the older brother. As we saw, every single detail of what occurred was given to picture the work of Jesus Christ in redemptive history. Where Adam failed and incurred a debt which could never be satisfied, Jesus Christ prevailed and his work made it possible for all of Adam's sons to share in the grace and the mercy of God. It is the same story which is being re-explained and repeated over and over again in the book of Genesis so that we do not miss what God has done. At the time, however, Joseph didn't understand. He thought his own father Jacob was confused about the placement of the sons and so he attempted to rectify it by intervening in the ritual which is verse 17. Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph is one of the very few people in the entire Bible who has a substantial amount of detail about his life recorded, and yet nothing overtly negative is said about him. Most of the time when someone is highlighted as much as he is, there are notes of failings as well as notes of favor. In Exodus 33, it says this about the great man Moses. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. In Numbers 12, it says that Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. And yet, despite these and many other accolades, his failings are also recorded. In one instance, he openly disobeyed God's command. When he did, we read the following from the book of Numbers chapter 20. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. 
The same is true with many others in the Bible. David, Solomon, the Apostle Peter, and even Jacob, the great patriarch of the 12 tribes and the one who is now pronouncing the blessing, had moments of weakness which are recorded for us. But of Joseph, this instance right now is about as close to failure as you will be able to find in him. He failed to recognize the hand of God's spirit upon his father Jacob as he prophesied and he blessed these boys. It further says that he was displeased. These aren't equal to the great transgressions of Moses and David among so many others. Instead, he merely misperceived what was occurring and he failed to understand the repetition of the same pattern which had occurred many times already within his own family in the past. I noted these last week. Already in Genesis, we've seen Abel placed before his older brother Cain, Shem before Japheth, Abraham before Haran, Isaac before Ishmael, Jacob before Esau, Jacob's second wife Rachel before his first wife Leah, and Perez before Zerah. What Joseph saw as an error was a repetition of God's continued selection of the second over the first. In this case, it would turn out to be one of the greatest moments in all of redemptive history. This one failure of Joseph, as recorded in God's word, is succinctly stated by the Geneva Bible. Here's what they say. Joseph fails by binding God's grace to the order of nature. In other words, it's the same failure that almost all of us have made. And it is the same failure that many still make in the world in which we still live in today. We attempt to shove God into a box of our own choosing. We perceive that the world should work in a particular way, and we think that God will act in that way. But this is, and I mean it, it is only the beginning of error. No sooner do we put God into a box than he surprises us with amazing wisdom, far beyond that which we could ever imagine. Paul explains it this way in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a little different context, but the idea is the same. Paul writes, where is the wise? Think of the wise person that thinks he's got God all figured out. Where is the scribe? The scribe is a person that gets into the Bible and looks at all the details and divides all the verses. Where is the disputer of this age? The person that argues for his position within the Bible. Has God not made the fool foolish the wisdom of this world? So you have these same groups of people that are in the world and aren't even a part of the covenant community. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached, meaning the gospel, to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to Greeks foolishness. What we think is irrelevant when God is concerned. I said this in the Bible study earlier. We may say, oh, I don't you know, believe in uh, creation. I believe in evolution. It's irrelevant. If God created, then we cre he created. We're a created being and we're accountable to him. I know atheists that personally say, I don't believe in God, and so he cannot hold me accountable for what I do. That's irrelevant. You hear people actually say these stupid things in life. It does not matter one iota what we think. If it is contrary to what God has thought and what he has ordained, it is completely irrelevant. I have people here laughing about that, but that's absolutely right. It makes me laugh too. How can somebody be so absolutely stupid as to think that they are above the creator who gave us the bumblebee that pollinates the flower, that gives us a smell, and that turns into a fruit, and that drops seeds and becomes more trees? The wisdom of God is so far above what we think, and yet we try to put God into a box. 
Jacob had the hand of God upon him for what would become the reality of the supremacy of Ephraim above Manasseh. And he had the hand of God upon him for what would become a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The hidden wisdom of God cannot be limited to a box of our own making. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? What says the next philosopher? Please turn the page. For since in God's great wisdom, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased him through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe while on this earth we trod. For Jews request a sign and Greeks after wisdom seek, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and foolishness to the Greek. Verse 18, and Joseph said to his father, not so my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. When Jacob was a young man, there was a sense of favoritism between his parents and he and his brother. The Bible told us about that in chapter 25 of Genesis. It said there, so the boys grew. And Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. There's nothing in the Bible, however, to show us any type of favoritism between Jacob and his two grandsons. Instead, we are left with only the impression that Jacob has been guided solely by the spirit of prophecy upon him. And so even in the participants of this drama, we see a picture of man as he wars within himself. In picture, Jacob then would be the spiritual man. He's guided by the spirit, and Joseph would be the natural man. He's guided by the flesh. Jacob has leaned on Christ to conduct his affairs in this moment, and Joseph has leaned back on Adam. It is the constant struggle that any believer faces, and it is a struggle which Paul explains, speaking about himself in Romans 7. There he writes these tremendously perplexing words until you understand that God has it all under control. He says, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. Think of yourself and think of this struggle that I know you go through every day. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is to the spiritual side of Joseph that Jacob will now petition. He will ask him to put aside his natural thoughts about how things should be and to rely rather on the wisdom of God and the guiding of the Spirit as he conducts his affairs concerning these two boys. Verse 19, But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. In an attempt to allay his cherished son's fears that he has erred, Jacob calmly repeats himself, Yadati beni, yadati. I know, my son, I know. The repetition is intended to highlight to Joseph that he is fully aware of what he's doing. And so with his hands firmly in the proper place, he continues with his explanation. Verse 19 continuing, he also shall become a people and he also shall be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. Now there's literal truth in this statement and there is spiritual truth as well. For the people of Israel, the literal truth is that when they are to come out of Egypt at the Exodus, there are going to be 8,300 more fighting-aged men from Ephraim 
than there will be from Manasseh. Now, if you add in the older men, the younger men, and the women, that's probably 25, 30,000 more people in that tribe than the other one. It's a much larger tribe. So that's actually true. And of the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who beheld God's glory at Mount Sinai, only two of accountable age, Joshua and Caleb, will be allowed to enter the promised land. Joshua, the successor of Moses, is guess from which tribe? Guess which? From Ephraim. And Caleb is from Judah. And these two tribes will become the two predominant ones mentioned throughout all the rest of the Old Testament. From Ephraim will come Jeroboam, who will become the first leader of the ten tribes of Israel as they break away from the southern kingdom of Judah. And because of this, the northern tribes are often synonymously called both Israel and Ephraim. The southern tribes will be known as Judah. It is the ten northern tribes called both Israel and Ephraim that will be exiled, dispersed among the nations by a guy named Sennacherib, who is the king of Assyria, and that is going to occur in the year 722 B.C. From this exile, these people are going to be dispersed to the ends of the world. They're going to lose their identity, and they're going to mix in with the Gentile people. This exile is going to include both Ephraim and Manasseh, but they're known as Ephraim because it's the larger tribe. It doesn't sound like greatness unless one understands what occurs during their dispersion. In his words to Joseph, Jacob uses the term Vezaro Yiye Melo Hagoyim. In his seed shall become a multitude of nations. But this phrase, land translated literally, um, the phrase multitude of nations is more completely understood when it's translated literally as a fullness of the Gentiles. The rest of the Bible is going to continue to explain this phrase, which is only actually used here in the Hebrew and only one other time in the New Testament. Imagine the impossible nature of Jacob being able to deduce any of this in his words upon the boys. How could he know that Ephraim would excel over Manasseh? How could he know that Ephraim would become the representative of the northern tribes of Israel, completely separate from the southern tribes of Judah? And how could he even consider what it means when he spoke the words, the fullness of the Gentiles? His blessing is one of faith in the hand of God upon him. Though his natural eyes were dim with age, his vision, his spiritual vision of the future through his spiritual eyes was sharper than a needle. In his weakness, God's hand of grace upon him was made perfect. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. Oh, how can this be? For in the law of God I delight, according to the inward man, so kind. But I see another law in my members, one not right, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity like fiery embers to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I will praise him with all my soul and all my breath. Our second thought today, Ephraim first. This is verse 20. It says, so he blessed them that day saying, by you, Israel will bless saying, may God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. The blessing was pronounced upon the two adopted sons in the explanation for it was given to the wary son, Joseph. But despite the higher blessing granted to Ephraim, 
both sons are noted as being in Joseph. He says, Jacob says to him, by you or in you, Israel will bless. In other words, though the sons are named directly, the blessing is implicitly in the name of Joseph. This has to be considered in what's being proclaimed by Jacob. Joseph's life has been an ongoing picture of Jesus from his birth all the way through. Every single sermon, we've seen this. So when the blessing is pronounced, it is a blessing directed to the work of Messiah. And so to understand this, what we need to do is go back and revisit the term, the fullness of the Gentiles from verse 19, the verse we just looked at. And we need to see what that is picturing. It's important to know and to understand right now. And I want everybody, if you remember one thing from this sermon, there are no 10 lost tribes of Israel. Yes, the 10 tribes were scattered as the Bible records, but there are no 10 lost tribes. Many, many cults and many, many sects claim that they are the 10 lost tribes of Israel, Mormonism and British Israelianism. And they'll say that that is who they are. This is entirely incorrect. Other people say, oh, there's lost tribes up in Afghanistan or they're over in India or they're down in Africa. That is incorrect. There are no 10 lost tribes of Israel. And if you don't get that right, everything after this point becomes skewed. Israelites from every one of those 10 northern tribes are noted throughout the rest of the Old Testament after that exile. And they are noted throughout the New Testament as well. Jesus, from his own words, Paul and James all mentioned that there being 12 tribes at their time. Implicit references are made about them as well. Thus, a remnant from each tribe was preserved just as God promised. I will preserve a remnant of every tribe of Israel. There are no lost 10 tribes. We cannot miss that and understand what is going on in here. It's going to be explained completely throughout the rest of this sermon. But if somebody says to you, I am a lost tribe of Israel, or this group of people claims to be a lost tribe of Israel, or they're over in Afghanistan, do not believe that. There's a very specific thing that's going on here. However, I want you to know that the majority of the people in the northern tribes, known as Ephraim, they went into exile and they were scattered among the nations. They have genetically mixed in to all of the nations on earth. And this is not an unreasonable stretch, but it is exactly what occurs in the course of human movement. Today, we know it as the principle of six degrees of separation. There is no person on earth who is not within the spectrum of this formula. Not one. They can be in the deepest jungle of Africa or they can be in the, the, you know, the permafrost up in uh, Antarctica. It doesn't make any difference. They are all within the six degrees of separation. All people on earth are connected to the Jewish blood of these dispersed tribes, collectively known as Ephraim. In Romans 9 through 11, those three chapters, Paul writes about the state of Israel, meaning the Jewish people during the church age. In this discourse, there in chapter 11, he says these words, and they were a mystery which was revealed to him and which had been unknown to the world before the ink left his pen. Here's what he says, Romans 11. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel, speaking of the Jewish people, until the fullness of the Gentiles. That phrase we just heard from the Old Testament has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. 
Despite this being a mystery unknown before Paul revealed it, this is what Jacob was prophesying of. His words, a fullness of the Gentiles, is the same phrase which Paul used there in Romans 11 in the New Testament, a fullness of the Gentiles. Unfortunately, it's still a mystery not comprehended by the majority of Christianity. Paul is speaking of us. He's speaking of the church, and that is whom Jacob was referring to in his ancient oracle, as we saw very clearly in last week's sermon, if you remember that. If you didn't watch that, go back and watch it, and you'll see that. While the Jewish people, represented by the tribe of Judah, is under punishment according to the law, God has directed his attention to the Gentiles, represented by the dispersed of Ephraim. And he is, in them, continuing on with his remarkable plan of salvation. The Gentile people are brought into the commonwealth of Israel because of the work of Jesus Christ. We become partakers of this holy olive tree, apart from the law, because he fulfilled the law in our place. Only when the Jews of Israel, back in the land now, only when they receive him in the same way, will they be returned to favorable status once again. Paul explains this very clearly and very succinctly in Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to what he says. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that means we are the uncircumcised, we're the Gentiles, and the Jews are calling us uncircumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, that's the Jewish people. At that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In confirmation of this then, we have to return to the Old Testament book of Hosea. There in chapter two, we read this. Listen to the words from Hosea. Then I will sow her, now, this is in the feminine, her, for myself in the earth. That's the bride of Christ. And I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, the Gentiles of the world, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, uses this exact verse in Romans chapter 9 to show that God had rejected his people, the Jews, and called another group his people. This is the church. This is the Gentiles. This is the seed of Ephraim, which is being pronounced by Jacob. Here are the words that Paul uses. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. In the New Testament, after Paul's letters comes what? the letters to the restored Jews. The entire New Testament makes this structure for a reason. You've got Jesus fulfilling the law. Then you've got the book of Acts, which starts with Peter for 12 chapters, and then it goes to Paul for from 13 through 28. It's showing the transition from Jew to Gentile. And then it goes from Jerusalem to Rome, and Rome be, Romans becomes the first epistle of Paul. And it goes all the way through to Philemon. That's the church age doctrine. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And then what happens after that? It suddenly goes to Hebrews, and then it goes to James, which is written to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, and then it goes to Peter, which is written to the Jewish people. The structure of the Bible is showing us what is happening in redemptive history, and there in Peter's letter, he again cites 
Hosea. Listen to this. But you are a chosen generation. This is not spoken to the church. This is spoken to the Jews after the church age. And we have to get that right or we make a, a fundamental error in what we're seeing here. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Man, he went all the way back to the Deuteronomy for that one, the word amsegula, which is my treasured possession, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God. Do you see what's happening? The Jews are God's people. Then they're exiled. So then Paul says, we are now a people. You who are not my people are the people of God. And then it goes back to the Jews and they who are not a people are now the people of God. It is exactly what is happening. And it's all prophesied by Jacob over these two boys. Once again, Peter is written. You look at who he wrote his letter to, to the pilgrims of the dispersion. He's writing to Jews, not to Gentiles. All right. So uh, did I finish that quote? But now have obtained mercy. And if these things aren't clear enough, Ezekiel chapter 37 tells us this explicitly. Using Judah as the representative of the Jewish people from southern Israel and Ephraim as the representative of northern Israel, we read this passage which perfectly confirms Jacob's words upon his grandsons. Listen to this. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel. Remember, we're brought into the commonwealth of Israel, his companions. Then join them into one, uh, join them one to another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. And when the children of your people speak to you, saying, will you not show us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand, and the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. We're awaiting the day when this physical bonding will take place. Israel must first go through terrible times before it occurs. When they're brought through the fire, they will be refined and they will be tested. Those who survive will call on Jesus and together Jew and Gentile will be united into the commonwealth of Israel in reality. Until then, we enjoy these blessings of Messiah by faith. The reason for the placement of this blessing by Jacob in this particular area of Genesis should be obvious. Israel has been brought down to Egypt. Remember, it's a time of famine and they have entered the times which picture the tribulation and they will have to endure the time of plagues upon Egypt, picturing the great tribulation to come. It's showing a picture in the past of what's coming in the future. Jacob's words now show the miracle of the church age, all pictured by this ancient blessing which elevates the younger over the older. All of the sons of Adam, pictured by Manasseh, will be reconciled to God through Christ, pictured by Ephraim. To this day, Jewish people still pronounce upon their children the blessing, may God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. They do this before the beginning of the Sabbath and at other times throughout the year. And I got to tell you how wonderful it's going to be when they realize the significance of what they're saying in its fullness. May that day be soon. As a final note concerning what is being pictured in this beautiful blessing, we have to turn to Hosea one more time and to see it actually laid out in a chiasm 
which shows us what God is doing in redemptive history. All right, if you don't know what a chiasm is, if you're watching, I'm going to explain it as I go along, but it's a pattern that says something. It comes to a final point, and then it goes backward, and it says the same thing in reverse. It's a very beautiful poetic and literary form that God uses. It's the highest of literary forms, in my opinion. But I'm going to pass this around here at the church, and I'm going to post it on the video as well. Just let people look at that. This is what I'm going to explain real quickly. This is from the book of Hosea, which Paul and Peter have used to justify that they were not a people and that they will be a people again. Listen to what it says. You are not my people. I will not be your God, he says. Jezreel, that's the name of a place, which means God will sow. And then the next one, dry land and thirst. The next one, a wife departs from her husband. A wife returns to her husband. And then he says, take away the new wine. And then in the next one, it says, God punishes Israel. And then the next one, it says again, God will punish her. And then you come to what's called the middle or the anchor verse of the chiasm. It says, but me, she forgot, says the Lord. Now think of Israel having forgot her God. And now think of what the church is doing. We're starting to forget our God. And then it turns around and it says the opposite. Instead of punishing her, I will allure her. Instead of God punishing Israel, God comforts Israel. And then he said he would take away the wine. It now says he will give vineyards. And then instead of the wife returning to her husband, it says the Lord says that you will be called my husband. And then instead of the wife departing from her husband, it says the husband betroths his wife. Instead of dry land and thirst, there is grain, new wine, and oil. And once again, he repeats Jezreel, God will sow first in Jew and then in Gentile. And then at the very beginning, it said, you are not my people. I will not be your God. It says, you are my people. You are my God. Now, I found this chiasm all the way back in 2007 on 23 November. And it has proven to me to be a huge source of comfort since then, as I have continued to see God's word unfold before my eyes in human history happening in the Jewish people. The middle verse, the anchor verse is the woeful cry but me she forgot, says the Lord. All that God would ask of us is to remember him, to love him, and to honor him as he unfolds our lives before us. When we do, by calling on Jesus Christ, we enter into the commonwealth of Israel and we are entitled to the wonderful blessings that he bestows. I will call them my people who are not my people and her beloved who is not beloved. I will be praised among the Gentiles under every church steeple, while my disobedient Israel is from place to place shoved. And it shall come to pass in this place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God, righteous Gentiles worshiping under the church steeple. Our third thought today, a portion above your brothers. This is verses 21 and 22. Verse 21 says, then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am dying. In completion of his blessing and his prophecy, Jacob now returns from what is spiritual to what is natural for a moment. He utters the words which terrify everybody except those who live by faith. Hine, anochi met. Behold, I die. But in Jacob, there is no sense of anguish or any lack of joy. Instead, it is the inevitable state of every man to which he confirms that he is a part. Man lives, man must die. But as a sign that he is a man of faith and unafraid of the future, he continues his words. But God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. From faith to faith. His blessing was one of faith, and his words to Joseph now follow that same path. Though he had left 
Canaan 37 years earlier. He was sold by his brothers. Jacob confirms to Joseph once again that he will return back home to the land of his fathers. At this point, Joseph is firmly established in the land. He's the second ruler of all of Egypt. His entire family has moved there, and they have resided there already for many years. And yet Jacob, through his spiritual eyes, knows fully that Joseph and all of Israel will return to Canaan someday. He is Jacob, the man of flesh. He is Israel, who trusts his God. Verse 22, our last verse of the day. Moreover, I have given you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. The final words of this meeting are uttered, and they again are words of faith. Not only is Joseph and his seed going to return after him to Canaan, but they will receive an inheritance as is now granted to them. It is for one portion above his brothers, meaning that the adopted sons will in fact receive the inheritance that they have been promised. Ephraim and Manasseh, upon whom these prophecies have been pronounced, will accompany Israel's march from the land of Egypt. They will share in the covenant blessings. They will inherit a specific piece of land, and it is named by Jacob. In this grant, the Hebrew words for one portion are Shechem Echad. It means literally one shoulder. It is also the same word for the name of the city of Shechem, though which Jacob obtained many years earlier. He's making a play on the word shoulder. There is a ton of debate about his words here because he bought some of that land from the Hivites. You may not remember that, but he actually purchased the land up there. And then the sons went and killed the people of the city, but these people weren't Amorites either. But here's what he said. He said, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. There's no record outside of this verse to support the words of this verse. And so some scholars say that he is stating it prophetically, meaning that the land will be taken from the Amorites by Israel at some point in the future. But this is not correct either. Joshua 24 says exactly the opposite when the Lord speaks to uh, Joshua. And how do I know? Because I researched this out to make sure that I wasn't being led down a primrose path. I'm going to read you one more time this verse 22, and I'm going to read you what it says from Joshua 24. Moreover, I have given you one portion above your brothers, which I, I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Here's what the Lord says to him in Joshua 24. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you. Also the two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword or with your bow. He says the exact opposite. So further details of how Jacob obtained the land is not needed apparently because the Bible doesn't record them, except in this one verse right here. What is important, though, is that an extra portion is granted, and that land grant is then recorded in the book of Joshua. And the land that they received is exactly where Jacob said it would be. It's in the area of Shechem. It is the same piece of land which is noted in John chapter 4 when Jesus spoke to a woman at a well, which belonged to, as it says, Joseph. Here's what it says. So he, meaning Jesus, came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sichar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. The history of the promised land is recorded because it is God's land, and he has given it to his people, Israel. But God also has another group of called-out people that are his own. They are the unworthy recipients of God's grace, which was prophesied by an old man when he blessed his two grandsons. Surely Jacob couldn't have known the significance of his words, and so surely the words were spoken by the Spirit of God as they moved him. 
What an amazing thing that God has shown us and continues to show us as he unfolds the world right before our eyes. We are living in the time where these things are actually happening. And just so you know, although it, it can't be identified to the exact number, it is believed that Andrew Fleming's discovery of penicillin has saved more than 100 million or more lives. Imagine that. A mistake in a laboratory which changed the world as we know it and which saved all of those people. But that is a mere drop in the bucket compared to the billions of eternal souls that have been saved by the plan of God as revealed in the pages of the Bible. Like Fleming, Joseph thought he was witnessing a mistake, but instead he was beholding with his own eyes the acknowledgement of a plan which includes each person who is called on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you've never had a moment in your life where you can say, I have received Jesus, I'd ask you to please let me explain to you how you can and why it is so hugely important that you do. The Bible says that we have all sinned. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And it says that the wages of sin is death. We will be separated from God when we die for all eternity because he is infinitely holy and infinitely righteous and we are fallen. There can be no fellowship between the two of us. But God did something wonderful when he sent his son Jesus. He fulfilled that law that you and I cannot fulfill. And he gave his life up as a substitute for us, which the law authorizes. The law authorizes a substitute of one for another. He's perfect. We're not. His deeds can overcome Adam's deeds and our sinful deeds if we put our trust in him. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all we have to do is call on him. I want Jesus. I can't save myself. I want him to forgive me of my sins. I want to be cleansed of it. I want him to be my savior and he will do it. He's just, he's faithful to forgive if we simply call out on Jesus. So if you've never done that, I would ask you today to just humble your heart and say, you know what? I can't save myself and I want to be with God for all eternity in that beautiful place that he has prepared for us and he will do it. His word is binding. He cannot lie. He is God. So please just take that to heart, take it into consideration and do what you need to do. Our closing verse today comes from, yes, Hosea. It's from Hosea 11. It's the 8th and ninth verse. It says this. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. Instead, he came with Jesus, the Lamb of God, and he came to all of the dispersed of Ephraim around the world. And he says, call on me, and I will save you. Next week is Genesis 49, 1 through 7. We're going to be in chapter 49 for four or five sermons, and it is going to be most unusual. I may lose some viewers over this one. I don't really care. I'm going to justify why I take the stand I do on these blessings. Uh, this one is the blessing of Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. And I'm going to follow through a pattern of all 12 of these sons. And it is pointing to something which the Bible speaks of. It's not something heretical. It's not something that is hocus pocus. It is what God is trying to show us. It's very interesting. And uh, like I say, it'll be four or five sermons from the uh, 49th chapter. Before we have our daily poem, I'd like to uh, say that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and he has a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. And our poem today is entitled, May God Make You as Ephraim and Manasseh. 
Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. He found it a bother. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head and thus over to Manasseh's head instead. Now Joseph to his father said, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. Let the blessing his soul adorn. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he shall be great also. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he in acclamations, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, speaking this way. By you Israel will bless as they declare. May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. By them may all others so compare. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. This is what transpired on that day. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying without cares or bothers, but God will be with you and bring you back there to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you and in your sight above your brothers one portion, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. This is my proclamation. Living in the presence of the Lord, dying as an old man full of faith and hope, Jacob pronounced his prophetic word, which is revealed in redemption's scope. God had a plan for his people Israel, but this plan involves all other nations too. And we see it as history does tell in the salvation of Gentiles like me and you. God's love for his creatures is perfect and pure, and it is demonstrated in the giving of Jesus, his son. In him, there is a wondrous hope, eternal and sure, and in him, all that was needed has been done. Now by faith we can in the presence of God be made just, and for eternal years praises to him flow from us, because of the work of another in which we trust, because of the majestic work of our Lord Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Oh, Heavenly Father, what an amazing, amazing thing you have put in the book of Genesis. Every time I think I've seen it all and I, I have been astounded as much as I could be, you surprise us once again with something like you did today. What an absolutely astonishing thing has come out of these few verses from the book of Genesis that points to all of redemptive history, every person sitting in every church around the world, Jew and Gentile, and how they are all saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Messiah, the one to which all of our hope, all of our uh, anticipation should be directed. Lord, I just cannot believe it. What a marvelous story. And there's more to come. We have just how many more books? We've got uh, 65 books and two chapters to go. What an amazing story. Thank you for these things. Thank you for all you've done for us. Please be with each person here and each person watching on YouTube and bless them in their souls and take good care of them in the week ahead and uh, help bring them back here safely next week for another exciting adventure and another exciting episode in the uh, life and times of the people of Genesis. We love you and we praise you. And we do so in the name of our exalted Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper from the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, there in uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul writes these words. He says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given thanks over the bread in these words. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it and he said, take this and eat, all of you. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this 
in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, your hip and your knee. In the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we want to take a moment and pray to you for. Uh, our brother's uh, hip, which is uh, having some problems today. He's in pain, and I can see that. And we would pray that you would take good care of him, help him through this, and uh, just, uh, if possible, give him uh, relief at work so that he doesn't overstress himself and uh, that he can uh, uh, just continue to uh, be okay without any more trouble than he's already facing. And we thank you for everything you've done for us. We praise you, we love you, and we glorify you. And we do so in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.